You're listening to The New Paris. I'm your host, Lindsay Tremuda. It's been a while since I've done a France news update, but there are so many pressing issues facing the country now besides COVID that it was really time to jump back in. And this time, I'm joined by Yasser Louetti, a human rights and civil liberties activist, a community organizer, and political analyst. He also co-founded the NGO CJL, a transnational human rights and civil liberties organization. As a fellow podcaster at Le Breakdown and Les Idées Libres, I couldn't think of anyone better to join me to discuss the status of France's controversial security bill, ongoing racism, Islamophobia, and the historic sources of many of the country's troubles. Yasser, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, um, I have been a guest now on your show twice, once in French and once in English. And it's it's been basically a question of which major topic do I bring you on the show to discuss? Because there are so many. And it just so happens that, um, you know, you've been more vocal, obviously, in recent weeks um, as... We have new information about certain bills and certain topics of discussion that have become prominent yet again in France. Um, and so I wanted to actually begin by asking you to explain something that you tweeted. Um, and it shouldn't come as a surprise. You wrote, the more France becomes impotent on the international scene, the more it is racist at home. This country has both intellectually and morally collapsed, and no institution is safe from this downward spiral, spiral toward neo-fascism. That's quite an opinion, sir. Um, can you explain what prompted that sentiment? I mean, this sentiment grew throughout the years. I kept seeing these uh, governments from the left and the right, and now the so-called center, which is actually the hard right, if not the far right, under Emmanuel Macron. And the more the more I saw these uh, one-upmanship and these uh, bravado politics around identity, security, and how they are going to be tough on minorities, the more they reminded me of the abusive husband who comes home from work uh, to beat his wife because he's becoming he feels he feels like he's irrelevant at work, and for him uh, to feel like a man again, he needs to kind of show his strength against who is weaker, and against a person who couldn't answer. And that's exactly what I what I thought when I kept seeing these you know discourses and how tough they were going to be, especially against Muslims. And at the same time, uh, I had the chance of living in seven different countries, including in the U.S. In the Middle Seven. East. I don't think I realized that. I Where have you lived besides? In, no, well, I know you were. I know about your pilot, your your airplane uh, flying days. Only recently, actually. But so you, you know, you have that whole side of you, and you lived in the U.S. But where else have you lived? Uh, in uh, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Bahrain, Jordan, Tunisia. What did I miss? How much is that? Yeah, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, UAE, Tunisia. The U, um, the U.S. and of course France. So that, that that's seven total. Okay, so sorry to have cut you off there. You were on a you were on a no no a problem. Roll. Uh, <laughs> so. And uh, I realized how France had missed you know the um, the turn of a new world during the Arab revolutions. I was in Saudi Arabia when uh, the Tunisian revolution happened. And being a pilot myself, we were me and my my, my uh, comrades. We were following Ben Ali's uh, airplane before it landed in Jeddah at the VIP uh, at the Royal Terminal. 
And I realized that France, instead of seizing the opportunity to establish a new relationship with the Arab world and position itself as a country that would uphold the so-called, you know, liberal values it keeps lecturing the rest of the world about, no, it started with all the dictators. It supported Ben Ali, it supported Hasni Barak, it supported, uh, who else, uh, I forget, among these uh, rulers. And when it intervened in those countries, it overthrew uh, the, uh, the dictator, you know, Gaddafi uh, in Libya, and created the mess we are facing today within what's happening in, um, in, uh, in Libya. And I couldn't help but think, when was the last time France had a really relevant position on the international scene? The only memory I had was Dominique de Villepin's famous speech at the UN calling for uh, um, a, a refusal of the invasion of Iraq under George W. Bush. And then, of course, in, in, the, in the course of my work as an, of course, the head of an NGO, I found out, you know, you, you have all these statistics we are lagging behind in international trade, lagging behind in, in Africa. Now French is no longer the favorite language uh, in Africa. People are turning now, of course, to English, but also to China. Uh, it does not mean it's, it's, it's better, but France is lagging behind. We are, the, our schooling system is among the most inegalitarian in the OECD region. Uh, and now the most obvious you know, sign is that France, despite its a, a prestigious Pasteur Institute that is you know, known as, you know, as, a, as a global, as a world-famous you know, uh, laboratory, couldn't even come up with, with a vaccine against the COVID-19. And... Uh, well, and, and, and the country has been uh, taking away research funding in the pharmaceutical industry and I was going, for years. Exactly, I was I, I was coming to it, and, I, and 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 actually that revealed how much how France was, as you said, taking away research and uh, money from research, and on top of it, to make things even worse, in the midst of this, you know, uh, uh, controversies around identity politics, they even thought about conditioning research grants to 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 academics provided their research uphold uh, Republican values. So to me, I'm like, oh, okay. here we are lagging behind on all fronts at the global scale, and the only thing politicians have to hammer and show their, their relevance to the rest of the country is we are going to crack down against these minorities when they march against police brutality as they did in the aftermath of the George Floyd racist killing, they became separatists, if not, you know, uh, uh, yep. wild beasts, like the famous ensauvagement term used by uh, Darmanin. And following that, Emmanuel Macron came up with the uh, uh, anti-separatism bill with all the consequences that we know on opening the floodgates of hatred, you know, in mainstream media. Today alone, like five individuals from the far right are being interviewed in preparation for the presidential campaign. And... We have a France continuing to position itself as a liberal democracy, and I'm watching my country sink in horror. And the only thing I could tweet was that: is that yes, mm. that's what I thought about my country, and and and, and I think I I would do it again. I know people were unhappy about it, but I would do it again. Well, I thought it was very uh, powerfully articulated, and certainly, you know, goes in line with all of your other viewpoints and 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 the critical eye you take to the country. And, you know, it reminds me of something that Roca Yadiero has told me before, which is that, you know, it's not because she hates France that she comments and and, and critiques. It's because she knows it can be better. Um, and so I get the sense that that's sort of where you're coming from. It's not that you're, you know, uh, you expect more from this country that, you know, where you've grown up. I mean, 
a sign of it is that I came back to France after I left France. I was 19 years old. I came back. I was 30. And oh, wow, that is a that is a oh, big yeah. chunk of oh, your. Yeah. I, I left. I mean, like wow. you know, after high school, I, I wanted to become a pilot and. All my teachers and the counselor were like, no, that's not made for you. Is your daddy a pilot? No. So you cannot do it, etc." And I was like, you know what? To hell with it. I'm going to, you know, cross the Atlantic and, and see what happens over there. And I did. And I got my license. I became a pilot. It took me a long time to become because it's a very competitive market. But I did. But at the end of it, I got homesick. I thought I was done. To be honest, I was not. I was like, I'm going to discover the world. Yeah, but, you know... At some point, you're like, "Where is home?" Yeah, my home is my south side banlieue. You know, <laughs> I love when you I love when you talk about that. <laughs> but you said you were born in on the left bank of Paris, right? Oh yeah, I was born in the sixth arrondissement, you know, staunch, you know, conservative uh, district. But I think that's what that also contributed to my uh, political education because I, I, I knew what it was. I knew what it was to be uh, a minority. And to be looked at with a very condescending eye from the white Catholic bourgeoisie, and that I had a specific space spot to be at. I couldn't be anything. For example, my mom always wanted me to have, you know, to go to college, etc. And all the people she would work with, what? Why? 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 He could be a plumber. He would make as much money as a doctor. Why would he need to go to college? You know. And growing up, it turned out all of my friends, <laughs> you know, had their parents, you know, hear it from either their employer or their, you know, uh, the, the people, for example, in in the schooling system. So, but I still came back, regardless. You still, you still came back. And so, the work that you're doing at the NGO, which is an NGO you created, correct? I co-created, yeah. You co-created, and it's all around civil liberties and protecting um, human rights. Um, and 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 so, what's always shocking to me, and I think I've had quite an education in the last three years following you and a number of, you know, other very vocal activists. It's just how much France does indeed like to pat itself on the back for for historical accomplishments and and sort of the labels that it uh, attributes to itself as the le pays des droits de l'homme uh, i know you're you're smiling i know that's <laughs> that's one of the classic ones right like oh yes the country of human rights and you know what in a way and maybe you tell me if you you see the parallel the united states does a similar thing this sort of the myth of the exceptional country the exceptional homeland do you see both countries operating in sort of a similar position of declining power? With the risk of uh, kind of, you know, making my friends in the U.S. frown, I think in the U.S. people have a lot more space to be to be activists and to criticize and to express their criticism of the government. You don't have a tradition of a highly centralized government, unlike France, which has been a monarchy for centuries. You have a tradition of, you know, a federal system, checks and balances, strong protection of you know civil uh, liberties at least on paper that you can still uphold regardless uh, but at the, at the same time um what brought what my education about america was accomplished through hip-hop which means public enemy and all those critical voices at the same time when i went to the u.s even though i had a very critical eye on race relations class relations, etc. I was in Fort Worth, Texas, so I could see really what how, how things were like, you know, stark in contrast to France. You still have a lot more, you know, space to operate. In France, not only we have a, a tradition of a strong central government, the current so-called republic is not really a republic, it's a compromise 
between a monarchy and a republic. The Fifth Republic, uh, born in 1958 through a coup d'état, that's important to mention, in, in, the, in the favor of Charles de Gaulle, came with a constitution that gives so much power to the president that he is above accountability. So he can, first he nominates the prime minister, who then nominates the government. The president can dissolve the National Assembly. He's the head of the army. He's legally uh, untouchable. And on top of it, we have this tradition of not having a strong parliament that can stand against the president, especially since the, uh, the re-election of Jacques Chirac, I think it was after 2002, when the electoral you know, uh, calendar was changed. So we elect the president first and then the National Assembly two weeks later, which means when you elect the president, logically the majority of the parliament of the, of the national assembly would be at the colors of the president's or of the president elect so he comes in power and he has like almost a guaranteed majority in parliament so what are the checks and balances on top of it um, there is because we have a strong government the government does not like strong city a strong citizenry or citizens that are capable of you know uh, conflicting the government and standing against it. You know what we know what happened with the Commune de Paris in 1871 and the massacres in the heart of Paris. But even if you don't go to the full extent of proclaiming an, an autonomous region, the, the simple fact that you stand and say, listen, government, racism exists and it's not a, a series of isolated events. It is a system. It is properly set up to benefit the majority population. Police brutality is real and racism in the, in the police is real. That's unacceptable. So the government has so much, how can I say, um, monopoly over the, the, the political discourse, over the legislative process, over even the dominant discourse in the media. And on top of it, if the government you know, is you know, liable over something or wrong about something, only it can, can you know, provide you with self-criticism. So there is not really much room. And the last thing, if I, if I can, is because we have a strong central government in France, it has accustomed people to just shout a little bit and wait for the government to help you. You know, <laughs> so that's why the in the American context, no, we see you no know, like you know, the, the various rebellions that happened and even after the proclamation of the republic, etc. You still have a long tradition of activism, a long tradition of solidarity networks, and a long tradition even of you know subversive media. We don't have that here. No, I, w I, I will agree with you for 100% on the media not really doing much to challenge the government um, almost ever, really. Um, so, so for you, the, the, the demonstrations we've seen in the last year, especially after the separatist bill was first announced, and we'll talk about that, la loi sécurité, de sécurité globale. Um, for you, those demonstrations are not an example of I guess, the government's willingness to let the people make its feelings known. I mean, like, let's see how the government welcomed the demonstrations of the past two years. You know, That's true. Let's take a look at the Yellow Vest movement, how it was brutally crushed. Now, of course, this did not come out of nowhere. You know, the banlieue, you know, where have, have been the laboratory of repression for four decades. But now this state violence is uh, being uh, put on display in the hearts of Paris and against white people. That's why we now we have a national debate on police brutality. But when blacks and Arabs were falling victims of it, yes, something must be wrong with them. Even as, I know, as late as uh, 2016, 2015, with the state of emergency, 
when the government you know, uh, called for those 4,000 raids, 99% against uh, Muslim homes, businesses, and places of worship, even the left was like, yeah, there must be something wrong. They were not very vocal about it. But the day that violence was applied against the opponents to the um, the Paris Climate Summit, even Amy Goodman, you know, that I had met that day, you know, she smelled like tear gas and I couldn't mm. even get close to her. That day they realized, oh, the set of emergency is going to be a long-term problem. So today, when we see those marches being repressed with the, uh, with the, uh, the way they are and have been for you know, so many years, it shows that the government is showing the, is making this demonstration of force to scare you. They will not mm -hmm. you know, tell you you cannot you know, demonstrate. That would be complicated to implement. But they will beat down so many people and maim so many people that you'll be like reconsidering, should I go or not? And sometimes, yeah, I used to go to rallies with my son. I don't anymore. I'm like, and if I, will I really take my son to a demonstration with the cops around? And you know, right. I, I'm not sure if they're going to th start throwing tear gas in the crowd, etc. So no, a message is sent that there will be no place for dissent. And the law, and the bill, the the comprehensive security law today, is about making it even more complicated or difficult, if not outright impossible, to challenge the government. And where where uh, does that law stand currently? Where has it passed, and where does it still need to pass before it becomes enacted into law? Uh, well, so, so far it, it has passed at the National Assembly. The last recourse we have so far is maybe a, maybe an elected official would you know call in the Constitutional Council and have it you know uh, for example censored in multiple articles, but. I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, hold my breath on that because there are so many problematic articles and this law also comes after so many laws that have already enshrined the security state or the, the, the police state in France. Remember, after the Snowden revelations, we passed, you know, the government passed in 2015 the uh, bill on mass surveillance, uh, mm -hmm. then passed the, the SILT law, the SILT law of... Uh, October 2017, and this one made a set of emergency permanent, which means if the government wants to call for a raid, they no longer have to go before the, before the judge. And that's exactly what happened in the aftermath of the uh, Macron speech at Les Mureaux on the so-called separatism. Uh, Gérald Darmanin, the Minister of Interior, who is, by the way, being investigated for multiple uh, allegations on sexual violence against women, the, the Minister of Interior called for like something, I forgot how many dozens of raids against uh, Muslims. And the next day he's you know, giving an interview outright saying, we have, legally speaking, we have nothing against those people. We are just sending a message. So here we are, we have a government using the coercive states of the, of, of the, the coercive means of the state against people and outright saying, well, you know what, it's about sending a political message. How can we how can we still speak of a of a functioning democracy in France in this situation? Right. So so that's that's the big bill that we've been now talking about for I mean almost a year at this point. Um, more recently, there have been developments with um, specific legislation around the hijab. So it feels like we're yet again. I mean, France ha has like it's like a broken record country, right? Like we just, we keep talking about the same issues in various ways all the time. And, 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 and what I hope listeners understand, um, and certainly I, I was very clear about talking about laicite in my book because it's super complicated. It's not just separation of church and state, right? The way that France intended it is, and you are perhaps the best expert on this is, is, you know, keeping the affairs of the state out of, of sorry, of the church out of the state, but people are supposed to be free to practice their beliefs 
as they wish. But why is it that somehow not only have the um, sort of the the laws and rules around laicite seem to have shifted to become very anti-Muslim, and how does the new uh, rule uh, uh, on the on wearing the hijab if you're a I think it's a, a young girl under 18 and and in active in sports or school. Tell me about what what is going on here and why is this a continuing? Um, why is this still going? Why is this still going on? Yes, please. <laughs> well, it's what it, there are two things. There is of course the national uh, obsession with the uh, Muslim headscarf, the tradition that the white man needs to save those Muslim girls. The problem is that those Muslim girls became Muslim women saying, I don't need you to save me. I'm wearing this on my own and I want to go to school with it. I want to work with it. I want to go to sports with it. I want to travel with it, etc. And the government is incapable of accepting it because it's like you have a, a cognitive dissonance. These people are raised in a way that they feel superior because of their class and they go to schools where they are told, you are la crème de la crème, you are the elite, you're going to make the day. And now that they are in power, they do believe that whatever they think. And Emmanuel Macron is truly a personification of that, that he's never wrong. He is an, an, an enlightened individual and that he knows everything. And he, he even understands the COVID-19 better than specialists themselves. So today, what's happening with the Muslim headscarf is that this became a problem the day Muslims were no longer statistics or invisible beings in France. Because before they were what? They were just workers. And they were out of the public space. They were in their ghettos. They were in their slums, for example, in Nanterre on the west side of Paris. But in the early 1980s, following over you know, two decades of openly racist crimes and, 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 and terrorist attacks, I say terrorist attacks, which means uh, uh, car bombs, uh, cocktail molotovs, the Algerian embassy being bombed, Air Algeria being bombed, people getting killed in, the, in, in broad daylight by the police, by far-right activists, in total impunity. And after dozens of people got killed, 1983 is the historic march against racism for equality. And that sent a shockwave throughout the political spectrum because they're like, hold on a second. They are no longer guest workers. They have children who dare to ask for equality. What did we miss here? So after 1983 comes the, the Marceau Commission to reconfigure the game on citizenship. 1987, they set up the Marceau Commission on Citizenship in order to deny the right of soil to foreigners, which means they have kids here, but they can, but their kids are not automatically French. The last time that was questioned, it was during the anti-Semitic policies of Vichy. That's when the right of soil, which is a long-term tra tradition in France, that's when it, it, you know, it was you know, put into question. Fast forward to this day, we see that after you know 1987, we saw multiple events that led to a so-called national debate on what it means to be French. But not it means to be French in terms of who we really are. It's we are going to look at what those Muslims are and define ourselves in opposition to it. So mm. we don't, you know, French elites do not define France according to its you know, heritage, but only in opposition to its post-colonial immigration. And the Muslim headscarf is the symbol of the rejection of France's obsession with Islam. Today, they banned the headscarf in public schools, which is against laïcité, because laïcité is about neutrality of the state and state services, not users of state services. Hmm. And this is where it's... And the 2004 law was passed uh, after a rigged campaign 
And when you ask, for example, what are these laws about? It's again about rigging the game once more in order for you know, France's laws and liberties and, pro and protections of human rights do not benefit these minorities. So when these women say, hold on a second, I'm Muslim, I decide to wear a headscarf, oftentimes against my parents' will, now they are told, you know what? You're no longer a victim who needs to be saved. Now you are the culprit that we need to uh, to, uh, to to limit and whose freedom must be very uh, limited. And this is exactly what's happening. So being a Muslim woman in France, if you wear a headscarf, believe me, it's a social death sentence. Why? You can't go to school. You can't work. If you work, you, have, you stand according to the European Network Against Racism, a 1% chance of getting a job. Now they are prohibit prohibiting it to, for, for, for girls under 18, even though the age of consent is 15. Go figure. Uh, they want, they ban, they, remember the Burkini uh, controversy in 2016. Mm -hmm. So yes, we keep talking about it, but that's what I call Islamo-diversion. With all the problems going on in France, there is a focus on a piece of cloth over you know, some women's head. And if she, does, of course, if she decides to wear it, then let her wear it. If a person makes her wear it, then yes, there is a problem. But for right. that, there are police stations and there are courts where the, where the people doing that can be, are to be prosecuted. But, and just to finish on that, I see no difference between the Taliban's or, or whatever religious extremists imposing, you know, wearing a headscarf or a, you know, a full-face veil on women, and those here, the laika, the Islamophobes we know, imposing on Muslim women to take care of. Because at the end of the day, women are not free with their bodies. They exactly. Right. They, they cannot decide what to wear. And of and coming myself, for example, from avi, you know, from from business aviation. I mean, like I was a captain on some private jets. I've had my father attendants, they were in suffering because of the short skirts and because of the high heels. And they were constantly complaining. I'm like, you know what? You want to wear, I'm the captain. If you want to wear a pants, some pants, go ahead. If you want to wear ballerinas, I don't care. I mean, like you're here to, 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 to you know, make sure that the passengers are safe. You're not there to be there, some kind of, some kind of eye candy. But mm -hmm. in France, no. Saying that women are free in France, Muslim women tell you how free uh, French w uh, women are. It's so interesting because what you said echoes what um, Rim Salah Sarah Alwan recently um, expressed. Yeah, what she expressed um, in an interview, and she said it's all about visibility. Nobody cares about the hijab when it's your maid who is wearing it. Because when Layla is going to clean a senator's office, she is invisible. But when Layla's kid, Sumaira, is highly educated, went to college, wears hijab, wants to have a more visible position and is fighting for her rights and is doing things that are very empowering, her visibility becomes a problem. So that's just to, to excerpt her her uh, comment uh, in this in this online interview. But, you know, to me, it sounds like the the recurring theme, whether it's, you know, uh, France's former problem with the Jewish community, with the Muslim community, with the Spanish, the Poles. <laughs> right. Fill in the fill in the blank. It's that it's about identity and how the French view themselves and who is French, who gets to be French, and how that conflicts with migratory patterns and all of the other, you know, and the colonial history. It's like they refuse to accept that they've opened the doors. And who is French is now a much more diverse answer than it ever used to be. Well, you know, one day I was I was uh, at a meeting with um, an American organization that I, that was bringing in some 
uh, soon-to-be politicians and leaders in the U.S., and they were touring France and various administrations, and I was called in for a meeting at, to, to, to speak of France, etc. And uh, one of the one of them, I, I remember her, I think from Detroit, she said, when I take the subway, I see a, a, a kind of front that is really diverse. When I go to my meetings in those newsrooms and political parties and institutions, it, all, it, it becomes all white. And to me, France is really the, the people I see in, this, in, the, in the metro, the subway, or in the street, not in those institutions. I'm like, well, you, you got it, you know, you summed the things pretty well. Because, again, if the day you become visible, the day you say, I exist, the day you dare to say, you know what, I'm equal to you, and on top of it, and I'm going to push it even further, they try to make it to make it to make to make you believe or feel guilty anytime you express criticism, as if you were supposed to be somehow uh, grateful for being here. Well, first, I didn't invade this country. Your grandparents <laughs> did. Uh, second, when the elite of this country was collaborating with the Nazis under Vichy and uh, uh, deporting its, their own Jewish neighbors and calling the, the uh, and when the French police, by the way, born under Vichy, had its first major so-called accomplishments in the deportation of Jews starting in Marseille and in the Southwest, the indigenous were fighting those Nazis so which means the the tirailleurs the tirailleurs from Senegal and the Goumiers from Morocco and 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 all the 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 colonial troops they were fighting the occupying forces so that's number 1 France owes its freedom to its blacks and whites and muslims the second mm. point when France was devastated after the second world war who rebuilt it my parents their parents, mm-hmm. their grandparents, etc. So, how am I supposed to feel uh, grateful when this country owes my parents their health and owes the generations before me all the sacrifices they made in order for France to be free and economically prosperous once more? So, where do we go from here, though? Because everything you're saying is super pertinent and and exactly, you know, it 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 highlights precisely the issue. But how do we resolve this? How do we, what has to happen? Well, all of us, regardless of you know, our skin color, our religion, our, you know, our beliefs, etc., we are all now victims of the same, you know, um, corrupt and unjust system called the Fifth Republic. Some people still feel safe because they are not targeted as much as the others. But I tell them, don't worry, you're going to be next. So now it's about French people realizing that uh, their destiny is sealed. They're going to live and die together. There is no uh, second, no plan B. Muslims are here to stay. And unless they bring back the trains and the boats, they're going to be here for a long time. And they have been here for a long time as well. So it's about us being capable of uh, um, uh, upholding a different narrative for us to accept the idea that our children are bound to grow together in a more hostile environment, not only politically, economically, but also in t- when we speak of climate change and the destruction of the environment. It's about us promoting a different republic. The Fifth Republic is moribund and it is bound to collapse. Will it collapse through a coup d'etat? Will it collapse through civil unrest? I don't know. Only time will tell. But it is unsustainable. Now, what kind of political regime do we want to live under? That's 
Oracle, the people who are today active and, we, and, and, and looking at the ones who are 10, 15 years old, who will one day look back and judge us, you know, ruthlessly and, and, and look out and tell us that we failed them. So there is that. But in the short term, it's about struggling every day to have a, you know, a voice in the media, a voice in political institutions, and to hold the government in check, even though it means sacrificing, sacrificing a lot. But hey, if people want to define being French, I define being French with the French Revolution of 1789, 1848, and the Paris Commune, and all the struggles of the people who have been dominated and still made a difference after they sacrificed everything. So you, there's still an element of hope. Oh, well, if there's no hope, then let's just like, you know, stop doing anything, you know, and stop. No, of course. But you know what? I like, I like this quote of Marcus Aurelius. He says, the object of life is not to stand on the side of the majority, but to escape and find oneself in the ranks of the insane. Well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sir. It is such a pleasure to, to get to talk to you. We clearly only scratched the surface, but this is, this is, this is the good uh, lesson number one. And then we'll have you on and we'll talk about, you know, we'll go a little bit deeper. And in, until then, you've got two shows that people can listen to, Le Breakdown, uh, which is in English, and Les Idées Libres, which is in French. And you are the co-founder of the Justice and Liberties for All Committee. Yasser, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Lindsay. That's the show for today. As always, thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing with friends. You can find all previous episodes of the New Paris podcast wherever you stream your podcasts and on World Radio Paris. If you're enjoying these conversations, please consider picking up a copy of the New Paris book or my recent release, The New Parisienne, from your local booksellers. Until next time, à bientôt.